come this Lord's Day to continue in our study about the mighty power of God to save as evidenced in the story of Jonah. In Jonah's story, the power of God to save Jonah from the sea is obvious to us, but the power of God to save Nineveh can often be missed. Those people were exceedingly wicked and violent. They started wars and plundered and murdered entire nations. But God delivered Nineveh from divine judgment by a powerful working in their hearts to hear Jonah's warnings, to believe them, and then to call upon God for mercy. It was an astounding example of conversion by God's power that these bloodthirsty people believed the word from the Lord and called upon Him. Paul describes the external means by which God saves people. God saves everyone who calls upon Him for mercy. But nobody can call upon God for mercy unless they believe what God has said. Nobody can believe what God has said unless they hear what God has said. Nobody can hear what God has said unless somebody preaches it to them. And nobody will preach it to them unless a preacher is sent. In Nineveh's case, God used His mighty power to make Jonah preach to Nineveh. To make Jonah preach to Nineveh because Jonah didn't want to. Jonah preached to the people. The people heard God's word from Jonah. The people believed what God had said and the people cried out for mercy to God. Even their king was involved in this national repentance and cry. But Paul, the apostle, enters a caveat. Not everyone to whom God's word is preached will believe. As Isaiah lamented, who has believed our report? Now as believers, we all know the beauty and power of what Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 53. God's Lamb punished in our place for our sins laid upon Him by God Himself. It proclaims Christ's perfection, love, and determination to save His people from their sins by His propitiatory sacrifice to God. The glory of it all will break the hearts of anybody who has trusted in Jesus. Paul makes it clear, hearing the Gospel is absolutely necessary for salvation but it is not sufficient. Another thing is needful. God working in wicked hearts to cause them to repent and believe what God has promised. This truth makes many people angry because they suppose that anybody can believe the gospel by their own free will. As experience sadly shows, that's not how it works at all. Most who hear the gospel dismiss it and refuse to believe it which is strange for us because to us the gospel is so obviously true and good news to poor lost men that we can hardly grasp the deadness of lost men and their sin. We can hardly recall our own deadness until God made us alive again through Jesus Christ. But it takes a miracle from God for people to believe the gospel. Just as God worked a powerful work in the hearts of the people of Nineveh, to bring them to believe His Word and cry out for mercy. So too it is necessary for the Holy Ghost to work the conversion of poor dead sinners to believe God's Word. Jesus explained this to Nicodemus. Except the man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus clarified that to be born again means to be born by the Spirit of God. Being born again is not something we can do to ourselves. 
any more than we could bring about our own physical birth. Only God can cause a lost man to be born again by the Spirit. Nicodemus could not believe Christ's gospel at that time because he had not yet been born again by the Spirit. The work of the Spirit is secret and mysterious, Jesus taught. It's not something we can control or predict. Like the wind blowing, a man is suddenly born again by the Spirit without any control whatsoever by men. We must pray that God works a mighty work of conversion in the hearts of our lost loved ones and neighbors because we cannot do it ourselves. We cannot give faith to the lost. We cannot cause them to trust. And they cannot generate it on their own steam either. At the Lord's table, we celebrate God's mighty power to save us. The incarnation, Christ becoming the God-man to save us, to take away our sins, by sacrificing Himself in our place. All these are exhibitions of God's mighty power to save, but let us not forget to give thanks for that mighty power by which God changed our hearts and minds and drew us unto the Savior and caused us to believe. It is far more astounding than God's power to save Jonah from the great fish. It's more like the power God wrought to change the wicked hearts of the people of Nineveh to hear God's warning and believe it call upon Him for mercy. As Jonah put it in his prayer of thanksgiving to God, salvation truly belongs to the Lord. Now, the Lord Jesus emphasized the importance to believe God's Word and to trust in Him. There is that incident that we all know so well of the man's son who was tormented by demons, and it's laid out in three Gospels, but we looked at Mark chapter 9 this morning at verse 14. And when Jesus came to His disciples, He saw a great multitude about them, and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld Him, were greatly amazed and running to Him, saluted Him. And He asked the scribes, What question ye with them? This is an instance where Christ comes upon His disciples, and they're beset by a crowd of people, and the scribes are disputing with them, arguing with them, questioning them. The reason for this turns out to be because the disciples couldn't heal the boy who was possessed of the devil. And this upset the crowd, surprised the crowd, and the scribes delighted in it, didn't they? They rejoiced that they couldn't heal that boy because they didn't want anything to distract people away from their religion unto the true faith in Messiah, and because they didn't believe. And isn't it a miracle they didn't believe since they knew the Bible better than anybody, all the prophecies of Messiah, and of His power, of His glory, and of His death, and of His resurrection. They knew all that, and they still wouldn't believe. They wouldn't believe the signs and miracles that Christ wrought either. No doubt the scribes were asking mocking questions. I suppose they might have said, you can't heal this poor boy. Jesus probably can't either. All of this is a sham. This exposes this whole following after Messiah, so-called, to be a real scam. And at verse 19 of Mark 9, we read this. Jesus replies to this incident, this dispute. 
this inability to heal this poor demon-possessed boy. O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. Now the unbelief of the religious leaders is striking here. They should have been the ones to urge that the boy be taken to Jesus, even if his disciples couldn't heal him. They should have been the first to, to urge that they take the boy to Jesus. They should have waited with anticipation to see the salvation of the Lord through Messiah. That's what they should have done by all rights. And so you have to ask yourself once again, why don't they believe? How is it possible for them not to believe? After all that's been done, after all the testimony, and after all what the Scriptures said, and yet their hearts were like stone, you see. They'd rather argue with the King of glory than to bow down and worship and call Him blessed. They would not believe the works of Christ, even the ones that were done in their presence. Now, Jesus establishes next the hopelessness of this boy's trouble. At verse 20, they brought him unto him, and when he saw him, straightway the Spirit took him, tear him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming. And he asked his father, How long is it ago since this came unto him? And he saith, Of a child. And oftentimes it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Here is the way in which Christ questioned the Father in order to bring out to the public and to us the utter hopelessness of this boy's situation. And we have prayed in our own midst for people who seem to be possessed by the devil. That Jesus would deliver them like He did this boy, like He did the Gadarene, like He did Mary Magdalene, because we sure can't do anything about it. These mental possessions are very frustrating, very troubling, and very hopeless from man's perspective. And Jesus underlines that by bringing out the story in front of all those people. But Jesus then teaches the key will be faith that is believing in the power of God. And He says at verse 23, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. Well, isn't that just the problem? God requires faith and trust in His promises, in His Word. And here, Jesus is making an implicit promise that He can heal this poor boy if the Father believes. Who can or will believe, though? The scribes wouldn't. The crowd seems skeptical. Surely the boy's father had almost given up all hope because this has been going on since he was a little child. Who can or will believe? That's the key question. Can we do it ourselves? Can we gin it up in our own minds and hearts? How impossible that seems when you look at it from that point of view. Why, even we often fail to believe the promises of God, don't we? Isn't that our trouble? And don't we weep over it and pray over it that we would have more faith and that we would believe the promises that are laid out for us about how God cares for us and how He will work all things to His glory and our good? 
That's a hard one to believe in when things aren't going well, isn't it? And we know our faith isn't perfect. But look at verse 24. Straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Now this, no doubt, was one of the key purposes of Christ's interaction with this man, that he might articulate the true source of faith, the true power of faith. You see, he professed his belief out of desperation, probably, out of a hope, a forlorn hope. But he asked Jesus to help his unbelief. Now there is the nub of the problem, isn't it? Without God's work in our hearts, we just won't believe. We just won't believe the promises of God. We won't believe the Gospel of God because we're lost in our sin and folly in our natural state. Here see the critical point. God by His Spirit must take away our unbelief. Help my unbelief. You see, we need the power of the Spirit to take away our unbelief, to grant us faith and repentance and trust in the promises of God. So that by faith, we lay hold then of the Gospel by faith because we believe it. Because God works in us to believe His Word. Immediately, the Lord Jesus teaches His disciples after He heals this man. It says they left that place and went through Samaria and He didn't want people to know it. Because He was teaching them, He was teaching them. He taught His disciples, verse 31, and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men and they shall kill Him and after that He is killed, He shall rise the third day. But they understood not that saying and were afraid to ask it. Now you remember that Jesus taught His disciples that He would go and die, that He would be taken by wicked men and crucified, and, and that the third day He would rise again. They never even seemed to notice the promise of resurrection. I don't know if they just dismissed it out of hand or what. But they didn't like this talk of Jesus dying. And think about in the context of this, three of the disciples had seen the transfiguration just shortly before this demon-possessed boy was healed. So they knew the identity of Christ, even if the others hadn't seen it. And yet, they were afraid when Jesus said He was going to die and rise again the third day. And they didn't believe, apparently, the truth of what Jesus said or the purpose behind it. They must have thought, how can Jesus be taken and killed when He has power over all things, even that demon? Surely Jesus could save Himself. And you remember on the cross, they mocked Him. The wicked people mocked Him for just that reason. How can Jesus be taken and killed when He has power over all things, even the demons? Can't He even save Himself? If He can't save Himself, what good is He as a Savior to us? How could a dead man save the people who trust in Him? How can He then rise from the dead? How does this even make any sense? How does it make any sense that someone with all that power and who followed and obeyed the will of His Father perfectly, who healed the sick, restored sight to the blind, raised the dead, cast out demons, 
forgave sins. How could it even make any sense that He should die and then rise again the third day? Which shows how weak their faith was, you see. What we strive for and what we hope for is that whatever God says, we just immediately accept it and trust in it and believe it. But it's more complicated than that. If their faith is weak, if our faith is weak, then we question. Then we don't embrace everything that God says and believe. And that's all the more proof of how hopeless it is for lost people to trust in the Lord. Their hearts are set against God and against His promises and against His salvation. But notice who it was on the scene that believed God's promises. Why, it was the Lord Jesus Himself. Christ believed God's promise laid out in Psalm 16, for example. Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, nor will I suffer thine holy one to see corruption. This is the basis upon which the resurrection must be soon after death. The tradition is, after three days, corruption sets in. Here, Jesus is stating that He will soon die at the hands of wicked men, and the third day He will rise again. Well, that's just a repeat of the promise God made to Him. And that He Himself had disclosed to the psalmist David. Peter tells us that it was the Spirit of Christ that spoke to the prophets and told them of the things which should come to pass regarding Christ, regarding Messiah. And there was a sure promise of the resurrection of Messiah, which implied the death of the Messiah. And yet the only one around who believed those promises was the Lord Jesus Himself in His humanity, I mean to say. Of course, He believed them as God while He wrote them as God. He determined them as a person of the Trinity along with the Father and the Spirit. He determined that these things should happen. He ordained that they should happen. But in His humanity, He had trust in the promise that God had given to Him. Even if they didn't yet have trust in that promise. And you think about how hard it was for people to believe in Christ, even while He performed such mighty works, even as He demonstrated and acted out the very prophecies made of Messiah to set captives free, to open the eyes of the blind, to heal the sick, and so forth. They couldn't believe. They wouldn't believe. And so we must all cry out like the poor boy's father, Lord, help our unbelief. Take away our unbelief. For we cannot do it ourselves. We are helpless and hopeless to take away our unbelief. Paul the Apostle explained that without the Holy Ghost indwelling us, nobody can please God or obey Him. Or can there be any righteousness in us at all? In Romans 8, we read Romans 8, the first several verses this morning. In Romans 8, for example, Paul describes how there's no condemnation those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And then he explains how 
the law couldn't bring righteousness to us because our flesh was too weak to obey it. We wouldn't obey it. We couldn't obey it. But God sent His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So Christ has condemned sin in His own body. Not that He ever sinned. He condemned our sin in His own body. He was judged in our place and for our crimes. So now the law has no hold over us because He's exhausted the just penalty of it on the cross in our place. But the purpose of this is that the righteousness might be fulfilled in us by and through the work of the Spirit. They that are of the flesh, that is natural people, not tampered with by the work of the Holy Spirit, if you will, they do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit do mind the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded, which means to operate with the natural mind and the natural bent, is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because that natural mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. You see what Paul is teaching here. That people aren't just floating along on nice creek or nice stream, just sort of morally neutral, you know, waiting for somebody or something to happen, waiting for the gospel to be preached so that they can eagerly seize it. No, it says that their mind is enmity against God. They hate God. They object to God. They oppose God. That's the natural condition. That's the reason why it takes a work of the power of God through the Holy Spirit to change that mind to trust in the Lord Jesus, to believe the Gospel, and to call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. But to the Spirit, for the carnal mind is enmity, it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Notice the inability that Paul stresses here. We're unable to obey God's law or to please God. It says in the next verse, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. They that have been untouched by the work of the Spirit, that have not been raised from the dead to new spiritual life, they cannot please God. And so... Trusting in God is a complete inability in the sinful lost man by himself, under his own sting. He can't do anything to please God. And then Paul says, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So the natural man cannot please God, but if we're Christ's, then you have the Holy Ghost working in you. Then you are in the Spirit. That's the conclusion that Paul makes in this text. That all those who have come to Christ have the Spirit of God in them. And that all those who have trusted in Christ, then you have the Spirit of God in you. Because if you don't have the Spirit of God, then you're not Christ's. So it is this indwelling of the Holy Spirit, it is this powerful working of the Holy Spirit that changes the minds of wicked men to believe the Gospel and to obey 
God with a new heart, which before they were unable to do. As we said at verse 3, what the law could not do because it was weak in the flesh, God sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, that is, clothed in our humanity, and for sin, that is, to take away sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. So Christ's righteousness is laid upon us. It is in that way fulfilled in us because we have the Spirit. And the Spirit works towards our sanctification to change us to be obedient to what God has said we must do. So the work of the Spirit makes us alive to God and works obedience in us and faith to trust in Christ. And without that working of the Spirit, none can obey or follow or believe or call upon God for mercy. Which just once again shows the truth of what Jonah said to God. Salvation is of the Lord. By which we mean all of the Lord, none of ourselves, not by our power, not by our ability, not by our own quote-unquote free wills, not at all. It's all of the Lord, front to back, beginning to end. This morning I want to talk about a final example of belief in the ministry of Christ. Christ, as we said, trusted in the promise God made to Him after the flesh that He would be raised again before He saw corruption. His teaching about His death and resurrection in due course came to pass, didn't it? He was taken and crucified for our sins just like the prophets had foretold the psalmist David, Isaiah, Zechariah, all of whom were repeating what the Spirit of Christ had told them in advance would happen unto Christ in His humanity at His incarnation. He gave the reason at the Lord's Supper. The reason why He must die. But again, He was just repeating what had already been revealed in olden times. But you remember what Jesus said. This is My body which is broken for you. My death is for your benefit. My people who I would save. My body is broken for you. And My blood is shed for the forgiveness of sin to execute that new covenant where God promised He would forgive sin for all the people that He brought into that covenant relationship with Him. So Jesus actually before He went to the cross had taught in a nutshell why He would die, what it would accomplish, the salvation that He would work in dying, but how they mocked Christ's obedience and faith in God as He hung upon the cross. You remember the story quite well. In Matthew 27, at verse 39, for example, And they that passed by reviled Him, wagging their heads, and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests, mocking Him with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, Himself He cannot save. If He be the King of Israel, let Him now come down from the cross, and we will believe Him. He trusted in God, let Him deliver Him now if He will have Him. For He said, I am the Son of God. 
See, they were very clear about what Jesus had said. They just didn't believe Him, did they? They mocked Him at His death. They made light of Him. They jested. They cast wicked lies into His face as He hung there in shame and agony. And they said, if you're so great, save yourself. Then we'll believe. The irony, of course, is if Christ had saved Himself and come down to the cross, then nobody would ever believe because salvation would be broken for all time. There would be no hope. There'd be no work for the Spirit of God to do. All of God's promises of salvation would fall to the ground. Just a little bitty problem like that if Jesus had taken their advice and come down from the cross. But they didn't believe even after Christ rose from the dead, did they? These same mockers and scoffers, for the most part, wouldn't believe, wouldn't believe what Jesus had said, wouldn't believe the gospel. They thought they were going to prove that Jesus' work and faith in God were being even then crushed by them. That's what they thought. That was what they trusted in. Their power, their manipulation of the Roman tyrants, that they would snuff out this whole Jesus is the Messiah movement by forcing his hand, you see, by putting him to death and daring him to do anything about it and then laughing when he did not. So they mocked knowing that they had won, you see. They had their victory within their grasp when they saw Jesus hanging on the tree. But Christ in his humanity, remember all his ministry, he was filled with the Holy Ghost. And he knew God's will, and he did it, and was certain that he would save his people forever. Christ wasn't painted into a corner by the crucifixion. He had planned it that way. He insisted deliberately in going to the cross to save us from our sin. In his humanity filled with the Holy Ghost, you see, he had a double helping of faith, if you will, in the promises of God and in the purposes of God. He knew God's promise to raise him up was certain and sure. How can the word of the psalmist by the inspiration of Christ fall to the ground? As we mentioned, none of the disciples seemed to believe the promise of the resurrection. They didn't seem to notice Psalm 16. Surely the scribes and the Pharisees and the priests were better educated in Old Testament prophecy than perhaps his disciples were. But maybe their eyes were blinded, or maybe it was just one thing too far for them to believe. But after he rose from the grave, they were no doubt kicking themselves. Why didn't we see that? It was hidden in plain sight there. And Jesus pointed us to it by claiming the promise of Psalm 16. And in fact, Peter made that fulfillment of Psalm 16 the promise that Christ would rise from the grave before He saw corruption, a cornerstone of His sermon at Pentecost. It was impossible, He said, that Christ could be holden by the bondage of death and the grave. It was impossible. Why? Because of the promise that God gave to Him in Psalm 16. Christ at the cross, you see, had the faith in the promise of God His Father that nobody else apparently on the whole planet at that time shared. He knew God's promise 
to raise him up was certain and sure. And all their unbelief could not disturb Christ and His sure knowledge that His sacrifice would save us all who trust in Him. You know, there are people who try to shake believers from their faith. And sometimes it seems like they're about to succeed, doesn't it? But these wicked men around the cross, they had no chance. They had no chance of changing Christ's mind about His death and what it would accomplish. And at this table, you see, we celebrate what Jesus did for us. As had been said of old, He will not fail nor be discouraged. Remember what Isaiah foretold of Christ, He would not fail nor be discouraged. And to all of us, it would have been highly discouraging what they did to Jesus, wasn't it? No doubt it was highly discouraging to the disciples what they had done to Jesus. But the Lord Jesus, He powered through to victory. And there was no doubt in His mind that what had been foretold and promised of God, He would fulfill to the end even though he was surely distressed, sorely distressed, more than any man. You remember it said in Isaiah 52 that his visage was marred more than any man. They were astonished when they saw it. And when we celebrate here at this table, it's a visible evidence of our trust in the sacrifice. We wouldn't be here if it hadn't been for the work of the Spirit changing our hearts and giving us faith to believe. As we celebrate around this table, we preach the Lord's death until He comes. That's what Paul tells us. This visible evidence of our trust in the sacrifice of Jesus is just one way that God helps our unbelief. There is in other denominations a talk of the of the means of grace. Well, I don't know what you want to call it, but the fact is, being reminded of what Jesus did and how it brought our redemption and how it forgave us of our sins and how it justified us before God, being reminded of it in a celebratory setting is certainly one of the ways that the Holy Spirit works in our hearts to help our unbelief, to sustain our trust in what the Lord Jesus told us to trust in, to bring us here to remember the faithfulness and obedience of Jesus, to go to the depths of woe to rescue us. This is what the Lord Jesus did. And He trusted in God that He would deliver Him. And the Lord did deliver Him. You remember that Jesus claimed Psalm 22 as his own, as referring to him. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And yet Psalm 22 ends in triumph, doesn't it? That God heard him. That God did not despise the afflictions of his afflicted one. But when he cried out, he heard him. And he was saved at the resurrection that God wrought on his mortal body in the tomb raised him up to life. That was his salvation. Not saved from death at the cross, but saved from the power of the grave that he might live forever to make intercession for us and to see all of his loved ones come into a saving knowledge of him. 
So we come here to remember the faithfulness and obedience of Jesus to go to the depths of woe to save us, to rescue us. We trust in Christ's death and resurrection as our only and sure hope. That's what we're telling people. That's what we're telling ourselves. That's what we're preaching to the angels. When we gather around this table and by faith partake of this celebration, this remembrance which Christ has left for us. Well, next Lord's Day, I hope to finish this discussion of the mighty power of God to save that started out in Jonah and branches out to a number of texts of Scripture. I want to talk next Lord's Day about faith, where it comes from, more specifically from the epistles, but in the will of the Lord, we'll do that. But around this table, we celebrate how Jesus died for us, how He was faithful unto death how He laid down His life as God's Lamb to take away our sin. And we can see in His life and ministry and at the cross, even, we can see that in His humanity, He trusted in the promises of God, in the prophecies which He in His Spirit had foretold that they would surely be accomplished, that He would surely accomplish them, and He did accomplish them. And now we can be set free. We are set free when we trust in Jesus. Let's give thanks for the Lord's table. First for the bread that pictures that body that was broken for us. Oh God, our Father, we thank You for this celebration that You left us. We thank You that You have caused us to believe and to trust in the work of Christ on the cross. And that He left us this, this uh, memorial that we might be reminded of it again and again and again, once a week that we might be reminded of it and that we might take joy in it and that we might rejoice that You have made it possible for us to be here, not only by the miracle of Your Son's death and resurrection, but also by the miracle of that work of the Spirit in our hearts to change our dead minds over to life in newness in Christ to cause us to believe, to bring us in faith and repentance to the Savior. We pray that You would work in the hearts of our loved ones to cause them to believe, to change their hearts and minds, to help them to see their lost condition and cry out for mercy when they trust in what You have promised, that You will save whoever calls upon You in truth. Bless this bread to our hearts and minds, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord was betrayed, He took the bread, He blessed it, He broke it, He said, take and eat. This is My body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. I'd like to ask Brother Whitten if he'd give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed to make atonement for our sins. And the Scriptures tell us that after they had supped, He took the cup and He blessed it. And He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in My blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as you do it in remembrance of Me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Well, let's stand and sing number 79. In the black book, number 79, Jesus thy head, once crowned with thorns, is crowned with glory now. 
Heaven's royal diadem adorns the mighty victor's brow. To us thy cross with all its shame, with all its grace be given. Though earth disowns thy lowly name, God honors it in heaven. Number 79. 